You're listening to The New Leaf Project, sharing stories from instigators, innovators, planters and starters from across Canada. My name is Elle. My name is Jerry. And this is The New Leaf Project. Thanks so much for tuning in and hanging out with us. We've got a great episode for you today, as always. This is part one of a two-part interview with Joel Thiessen. Jared, tell us a little bit about Joel. Well, um, I caught up with Joel at Ambrose University. He's a professor of sociology there, and he's one of these rare birds out there uh, who studies um, the, the, the religious landscape in Canada. And so hmm. uh, in this episode, we're going to hear a lot about what's changing in Canada, how things are different. And to uh, start beginning to reflect on this group of people that StatsCan are calling the nuns. So when you fill out a survey and it asks your religion, um, mm-hmm. people in increasing numbers are starting to say nun, N-O-N-E. And uh, this group of people is the fastest growing religious uh, category in Canada. So really excited because Joel does a great job uh, of, of explaining these trends and talking about how they affect the church. That's fantastic. Well, friends, here we go. It's part one of the two-part episode here, uh, with the interview with Joel Thiessen. I'm sitting here with uh, Joel Thiessen, PhD, uh, Associate Professor of Sociology at Ambrose University here in Calgary. We're sitting on a lovely sunny day in your windowed office. Yeah, it's true. A beautiful view of the mountains. Yeah, I don't yeah. take that for granted. It's gorgeous. So you're also the author of, of two books. Uh, one is The Meaning of Sunday, and the other is Sociology of Religion. And this is actually uh, put out by Oxford Press, and it's, a, it's, it's sort of a textbook that that sociology professors use in, in uh, education here in yeah, Canada. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of sociology of religion textbooks out there, none that have a decidedly Canadian focus. A lot of stuff comes out of the U.S. and out of the U.K. and so forth. So I uh, co-authored this with uh, Lauren Dawson, a sociology professor at Waterloo, and wanted to provide a textbook for students in Canada with all up-to-date Canadian data, Canadian case studies and examples to flesh out some of the theories. So, yeah, it's it's used widely across the country today in sociology of religion courses. So tell me a little bit about your interest in sociology of, of religion. How did that come about? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I went to college, university in the first place to become a youth pastor and uh, started taking some classes there and uh, some practicum opportunities. And I was doing those things and I thought, I don't think this is a good idea for me or for churches <laughs> or for youth. And I thought, uh, I, you know, I, I want to know more about young people and how they think about religion and how they practice their faith. But uh, I wasn't sure that youth pastoring was perhaps the right avenue for me to do that. And I was exposed to some courses in sociology and they just made sense for me. I didn't have to work that hard or think that hard for it to to connect with my own way of thinking about the world. And then I took courses in sociology of religion, uh, religion and culture in Canada, and I found that this created this great opportunity with the kinds of things that intrigued me about potential youth ministry and understanding religious beliefs and attitudes with uh, 
a different framework for thinking about the world and understanding the world sociologically. And so uh, it made sense to me. Uh, and at the same time, I read things in those courses that experientially and sociologically didn't resonate with me. And so I think that's what really launched me into trying to understand sociology of religion in a, a greater way, was to, I think, grapple with questions and uh, uncertainties and critiques that I had towards current research and literature, etc. And uh, my own curious nature that just opened Pandora's box in many respects. So for those of us who don't have an academic background or we only took like one sociology course in high school or whatever, what what makes sociology distinct from the other sort of humanities yeah. uh, departments? Yeah. I mean, it is the systematic study of human society, which means that we go about uh, very systematic and scientific ways to understand human behavior. So we draw on all kinds of methods, uh, surveys, interviews, focus groups, case studies, and so forth, to understand why people believe and behave in the ways that they do. Uh, it, it's privileged upon uh, empirical data. So when we make claims within sociology, it's not based upon what I personally think or feel. It's not based on what tradition may tell us. It's based on what does the data reveal about people's attitudes and behaviors. And that becomes the litmus test of offering all kinds of conclusive statements or observations about the world out there on a variety of themes and topics. So empiricism is key, as is uh, looking at things as objectively as possible, that we try to uh, depending on one stream within sociology, we try to set aside our personal values and beliefs uh, to understand how people actually view the world. So I might interview someone or I might include a, a group of people in a survey and I may not personally agree with their own world view, but that shouldn't color or shape the ways in which I present how this particular people group views the world and that that empirical data holds the day, so to speak, for the the authoritative voice and, and uh, inside window into that particular group. I'd say those are some of the, the hallmark things that set sociology apart. So, and, and what set you apart in the field of sociology has been your interest in, in the Canadian story, specifically around uh, religion. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the trends that you see in Canadian culture and in Canadian society. What's going on in terms of, of, of our religious landscape? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's many things that I, I could say there. I, I would say, I mean, and really what launched me into this when I, I took a course in religion and culture in Canada was uh, reading a book by a well-known sociologist of religion in Canada, Reginald Bibby, who uh, argued that those who don't attend religious services regularly, uh, those who attend maybe once or twice a year or not at all, that they have this ongoing desire for the things that religious groups provide, things such as life after death, uh, meaning and purpose in life, and that uh, so long as they desire these things, uh, religious groups theoretically offer these kinds of things, that these two should come together. And the, th the theory or the thesis is that Religious groups have not always effectively supplied religion. That is, they haven't always done things in ways that engages with this ongoing demand. Uh, and that if religious groups 
changed their music or changed uh, their programming or had more relevant preaching, these kinds of things, then we should expect people to attend more regularly. So it's, it's, a, it's a very market forces way of Absolutely. looking at, at religion. It is. It uses that supply-demand language, for which is a, a popular theory within sociology of religion in the United States called rational choice theory. And it, it builds on that idea and tries to use that framework for understanding what's going on in Canada. And I remember reading that as an undergraduate student saying, I'm just not convinced that if you just change these things that people will come or mm. that the demand is necessarily as strong as we think it is. And so when I, when I talk about what's going on today and I, I think about some of the guiding arguments in, in the meaning of Sunday, uh, I don't think people have as strong a demand as we think there is. So for example, uh, someone who attends once or twice a year mm -hmm. and you ask them a question, okay, do you desire greater levels of involvement in your local church? Right. And they might say yes, or perhaps, and then you ask, okay, well, what are the things that would lead to greater involvement? And they may say things like, you know, if a church was closer by, if, uh, if they had better music, if I felt loved and cared for and community, all the kinds of things we right. would expect to be the case. Uh, when you think about it, there are many religious options out there, particularly in urban centers, right? You have yeah. large churches and small churches, right. theologically conservative, theologically liberal, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Or the individual who says, you know, if a church was closer by and then you say to them, you know, as I drove to your place for this interview, I passed three churches in the last two blocks. Right. Uh, and my whole point in argument is that the demand, if it was actually strong, people would try to find congregations that met their desired wish list because there's many options out there. Right. In fact, they haven't tried. This is one of the things that came out loud and clear. They haven't tried to find a congregation that meets their needs. When you identify that these options are out there, uh, they essentially concede, yeah, I know I just told you a few minutes ago or I indicated on that survey that I desire greater involvement, but the, the evidence would suggest otherwise in terms of the actual behaviors. So... Your research helps us go beneath. So, yes. Bibby's Bibby's theory that that um, there's this demand out there for yep. religious services. We're just not supplying it. We're yep. we're not introducing our sermons with video clips enough. Enough Simpsons references. Yeah, yeah. Um, the music's not hot enough. Yeah. Um, you're saying what happens is sometimes people answer a survey yes differently than what what is actually real. They call that the halo effect. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, there, there's a sense of a, a pro-social bias that they, they're responding in ways that they think they ought to respond because this is the right or the good way of responding on okay. a survey. And I think there's an element of that, that interviews enable you to, to get deeper, closer to the ground. Now, there's definitely a place for both. And in my book, I draw on countless 35,000-foot uh, survey data to help understand these things. But yeah, you can, in an interview, you can probe people in ways to say, uh, okay, you said that you desire greater involvement. Uh, have you ever attempted greater involvement? Mm. Uh, what does that look like? Um, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to pursue greater involvement in the future? And then explain why you've given that answer. So these kinds of explanations, um, you can get it in some ways on a survey, but certainly not with the, the depth or the context that interviews uh, can shed light on. Uh, yeah. Um, 
Tell us what's going on in Canada. What, like yeah. from a, yeah, from a sure. large perspective, yeah. what's happening? Yeah, uh, there's a few things to, to pay attention to. One is, is we are progressively moving in a secular direction. And some of the indicators of that would include uh, fewer Canadians who identify with a religion. So 24% of Canadian adults and 32% of Canadian teenagers today say they have no religion. Uh, All-time high fastest growing quote-unquote religious group in Canada, the United States, and the modern Western world. Uh, fewer people, so people who have no religion are the fastest growing religious designation. They are, yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't believe in a God or supernatural being. It doesn't mean that they may not pray from time to time. There are certainly uh, those indicators among some who say they have no religion. But in terms of an identifier, uh, there is there is this rapid growth in those who say they have no religion. And it's a... Uh, so they're not all atheists. No, they are not. Now, atheists are more likely than not to find themselves within the no religion right. camp. And right. uh, our, our best estimates, both in quantitative and qualitative data, would say uh, around 50% of those who say they have no religion would identify themselves as atheists. So about 12% of the Canadian population would be atheists. Yeah, depending on Did which... Did you do my math right? Yeah. I'm terrible at doing yeah, math yeah, right. yeah, depending on which survey you look at, okay. uh, you'll get sort of a, a ballpark uh, range. And so it. that's actually very similar to what I understand the evangelical numbers to be. Yes, yes. In fact, almost twinned. That's that right. There's 12% atheists, sure. 12% evangelical. Yep, yep. No, that's, that's right. And... Uh, it's, it is an interesting dynamic, and it plays itself out differently in Canada than it does in the United States. But it is one of these, these trends that are... Um, I mean, atheism as a whole is not growing, I would say, that rapidly. Mm-hmm. But overarching category of, of those who say they have no religion is, is definitely... Okay. Uh, to pay pay attention to. Well, what about other religions? Where, where are they at? Yeah, it's... Uh, you know, we have this Canadian narrative that we're a religiously diverse society, and, and this is partially true, but when you take all of the non-Christian religious traditions and you add them together in Canada, mm-hmm. only 8.2% of all Canadians identify with a non-Christian religious tradition. You take the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Sikhs, the Jews, everything all together, 8.2% of the entire population. Which so is, then what's the rest? What's the, what's the rest of the number? The rest of the number is 67% who identify as Christian. Wait a second. Is 60... Really? Yeah. It, no. That number is declining. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. That could be higher or lower than some anticipate. Uh, so it is. it remains the largest Christian group, or sorry, the largest religious group. It's on the decline. Over the last decade, it's dropped almost 10 percentage points. So it was 76% in 2001, uh, and then down to 67% in uh, It's dropped in, in 10... 10% in, in a decade. Wow. Yeah. And it's basically been picked up within that no religion category. Okay. So it's not as if people are converting to Islam no. or Hinduism no. or Buddhism. No. Or... no. Those figures are rising primarily due to immigration. Uh, the, the other religions Yes. Category. The other religions okay. category uh, due to immigration and then larger birth rates. Uh, but by second generation or third generation, you find a regression to the mean in terms of birth rates and so forth. But mm-hmm. so th- this isn't to deny the very real presence of other religious traditions in Canada, right, right. and we see all kinds of ways where that has some very tangible implications for social life. But it's nowhere near as large as I think. A lot of Canadians think it is based on what we see in the media, the kind of political discourse around religious diversity, educational settings, and so forth um, that that shapes the the religious landscape, so to speak. So, and I think that actually connects with another 
trend to pay attention to, and that is the role of immigration. Right. A lot of people assume that our changing immigration patterns from the global south and east is contributing to the rise of these non-Christian religious traditions, which is partially true. But Christianity remains and always has been the number one religion among immigrants to Canada today. 40 to 50 percent of immigrants to Canada today identify as Christian when they okay. immigrate into the country. And if it weren't for immigration, Christianity would probably decline far more rapidly than it currently is. And I think that's an important narrative to keep in mind right. for the broad trends. It poses all kinds of interesting sociological and theological questions for local churches to think about what does the ethnic composition of our congregations look like in 5, 10, 15 years from now? Interesting. And, yeah. and how do we think about that as we embrace the church of 2025 in Canada, for example, or 2040 and so forth. I think there's some very real questions to yeah. grapple with there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, the sort of big, there's several surprises in that, at least for me. Sure. I mean, this, the surprising thing for me, of course, is to hear a majority of Canadians, uh, 67, percent yeah. uh, you know, consider them like identify as Christian, which yeah. certainly isn't my, personal experience of course um and and i think you did a lot in your book to 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 kind of at least give me some uh some way of just of, of understanding that you you called them uh you had three categories in your yep. book yeah they were active active affiliates yeah yeah uh, and they are individuals who identify with a Christian tradition yep. and attend religious services nearly every week. Uh, okay. So about 20 to 25% of the Canadian population are in that active. Uh, active affiliates. Okay. Yep. And then the next category yep. was? Marginal religious affiliates, okay. individuals who identify uh, with a Christian tradition and attend mainly for religious holidays and rites of passage. So they show up every Easter, every Christmas, they baptize their children, they get married in a church, but they don't attend any other time of the year. And they represent about 40 to 50% of the Canadian population. Okay. Yep. And then we've got that 8% that are other religions. And then you talk in the book also yep. about... The nuns. That's right. The nuns, those who say that they have no religion uh, and never attend religious services, uh, represents about a quarter of the uh, Canadian adult population. So just just for our sakes, help us, help us uh, define what is a nun, because I think this is a new thing. Yeah. The simplest definition is a person who says they have no religion. They don't identify with any religious tradition. Um, but they are not a homogeneous group. They are not all the same. There's okay. great variation among religious nuns. Uh, so some will be atheist. Mm -hmm. Some will be agnostic. And so I think of people that I interview and I ask them, okay, do you believe in a God or supernatural being? And they'll say, I don't really know. Let me tell you my story and then you tell me where I fit within this. So oh, okay. there's this ambiguity. Okay. And then there's some who definitively believe in a supernatural being who may articulate that, even in a Christian God sense or a more generic spiritual force out there. Yeah. Uh, there's a range of beliefs about the afterlife. Some believe there's an afterlife. Some don't. Some believe in karma, reincarnation. Even uh, though they're not like previously Hindu? Yeah. Yeah. Even though they're not previously Hindu. Uh, there are some who will uh, who will pray uh, with 
a range of, of variation. Uh, some will look to nature and will look at the mountains and will see a, a very uh, vibrant spirituality that's found within nature. Others will be uh, highly humanistic within their orientation toward the world. So this, this narrative on religious nuns is one of a heterogeneous group. Some that are at one end of the continuum, completely right. secular, mm -hmm. no level of belief, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All the way to those who have some degree of, uh, might, you might want to call the spiritual but not religious category, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and everything in between. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so what, what are some of the, uh, like I, I remember you talking about um, in your book that nuns, uh, at least a few of them, have, have almost a conversion narrative yes. for their, uh, yeah, they, they actually converted yeah. from a religious standpoint to a non-religious standpoint. Yeah. But they describe it in the way that often, say, born-again type people yeah. describe their conversion to Christianity. So is that a, a marker of, like, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. This is where I think sociology is helpful because we learn social scripts in social settings. And so I joke in my sociology of religion class, I, I tell people, uh, you know, Everyone thinks they have their own unique conversion story, and yet, if you boil it down, all conversion stories basically follow a couple of standard uh, okay. lines, right? So basically, right, I had this horrible past, I saw the light, and now I live this new great life following a religious tradition, or I grew up within this faith, I finally made it my own, and then you follow the narrative. And either narrative within conversion toward a religious group is this idea that I am now free I'm free from my past. I, I have a new way of, uh, of living, of viewing the world, etc. Yeah. And these socialized narratives are exactly the narratives that those who were once actively religious, who attended churches on a regular basis, who now identify uh, as a religious nun, the same kinds of patterns. So they say, you know what, I'm free. I'm free of all these things, those religious uh, experiences that had so many boundaries on me, that had so many mm -hmm. rules and regulations that were highly exclusive in their beliefs about the world. Uh, I'm free of all those things. Now I, I am inclusive. I'm tolerant. I'm open-minded towards different perspectives and views and how mm -hmm. they feel like that gives them a new lease on life. And so it's... Like they've been set free. Absolutely, absolutely. And the language we use as sociologists is really important because sometimes we'll talk about uh, disaffiliation or deconversion. Those prefixes of uh, dis or de, they normalize the religious end of the continuum. But when we talk about converting towards being a religious nun, it gives a bit more of a neutral language for talking about the different mm. identifying markers that people have. And it very much is clear among those who at least were religious before, who no longer are, uh, that this has been a, a significant conversion experience toward a particular way of viewing the world. Now, a popular uh, sort of conception about a nun, uh, and this is something I hear you know, debated around uh, the internet and, and places like that, you know, that without God, there's no such thing as morality. And that yeah. drives atheists nuts when yes, you say that. Absolutely. And I think it should because it's not, I, I don't think it's, it's probably accurate. But 
what did what did your research tell you about that aspect of of the nuns population? Yeah, nuns. let me. I'll give two different stories to answer this. Uh, the first is uh, a movement that started in London, UK, uh, about five years ago, titled the Sunday Assembly, and they are essentially an atheist church for people who uh, kind of, as they say, they take the best parts of church without the God parts. And so they gather every week in empty church buildings. They sing secular songs. They have uh, a speaker that Like rhinestone cowboy and and like just whatever comes to their mind. Yeah, things that celebrate uh, the goodness of... (laughs) Yeah, that's a good Alberta. I'm hip with the kids. (laughs) Yes. Everybody, yeah, I, I know what's top yeah, of the pops. That's right. I'm right sure now. they're singing that in London, England. Yeah, right now. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they yeah. find secular songs. They have speakers. They, um, they, they have different programs, but they also do social good. Okay. They volunteer. They raise money for different organizations. They go and help feed the hungry and uh, and help the homeless, etc. And they've planted a number of groups around uh, the United States and Canada and Australia and Western Europe, etc. So all that to say that you have highly secular groups that are doing very good things within society. The other story I would, I would share is um, this perspective that those who say they don't have any religion in some respects see themselves as more moral than people who are actively involved in a religious group. So I think of an interesting indiv- an individual who says, uh, who I interviewed, he says, you know, if my neighbor asked me to babysit his kids on a Friday night and I'm a religious person, I'm probably going to babysit your kids because I feel morally obligated. Like God's going to strike me down if I don't respond out of kindness and love mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, as someone without a religion, I'm just going to say, you know, I don't want to look after your kids because I'd rather watch the baseball game. And in his mind, that's a more moral response because it's a more honest or genuine response relative to, in his mind, religious people who do things out of obligation. Now, one can weigh the merits of that, whether that is more or less moral. But at the end of the day, there is a different perspective of morality that emerges about the meanings and motivations for why we do the things. In other words, it's not just the outer actions. It's mm-hmm. it's what drives us and compels us to do uh, the kinds of things that we do. But I would also argue that that's a, uh, as much as we have a straw man vision of their moral yep. compass, that's a straw man uh, vision of our moral compass. For sure. I don't do things because I'm afraid I'll go to hell. That's right. That's Which right. Hell does not often figure into my ethics very often, yes. I will say. No, and it didn't actually, for most that I interviewed, even among those who are actively involved uh, in religious traditions, it's it's not a predominant narrative within the explanations for why they do the things that they do. So they convert like us. They yep. have morals yep. like us. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, something I found kind of surprising is their view of, of what it means to be Canadian yeah. is... Uh, Tell me a little bit about what, what you discovered there. Yeah, this narrative of to be Canadian and morality connects in a very powerful and significant way. You know, if we think about what it means to be Canadian, we think of, of ideas of inclusivity, mm-hmm. of tolerance, yeah. of pluralism, mm-hmm. of diversity, of respect for the other, um, which for the religious nun in their own self-image captures who and what they are. 
when they think about religious people, people who are actively involved, particularly in conservative uh, religious groups, mm-hmm. so they would include uh, Roman Catholicism, evangelical groups, Muslims, and so forth, um, they would say that these groups are highly exclusive. You're either in or you're out. Uh, relatively intolerant, have very strict beliefs and values on things about gender and sexuality and salvation and so forth. And in the minds of religious nuns, not only are people who are actively religious in these respects um, less moral because they are not inclusive and tolerant and, and these kinds of things, but they're actually less Canadian. Isn't that interesting? Because to be fully Canadian means that you will embrace the other that you will uh, affirm and accept a different way of viewing the world. And if a religious group rejects a particular people group because of whatever it is, sexual orientation, uh, religious perspectives, etc., etc., that are you really Canadian is the kind of question that emerges there. Uh, So it has a cultural dynamic that's infused. and, And it's second nature for us as Canadian, right? It's just so reinforced in our education system, our political system, and so forth, that uh, it, it's deeply ingrained in how we think about ourselves. It, I think, sets us apart from uh, an identity within an American context or a British context and so forth. It doesn't mean one's better or worse than another, but it provides a different cultural framework for thinking about our identity. And that, that to me, sounds very distinctly Canadian. Yes. I can't imagine a similar argument being formed in the United States no. in terms of, <laughs> of who a true patriot is in America versus who a true patriot would be in, in Canada. That's yeah, and, and in fact, it's almost the opposite in the United States because there is this long-standing narrative that to be a true American actually is to be Christian. And not just to be Christian, but to be evangelical. There's a strong narrative and framework that reinforces that, uh, that's created a a different polarized context there between uh, not just those who say they have no religion, but the Mm -hmm. the atheist contingency. You see this new atheist movement uh, against that strong, radical, fundamentalist Christian right. Uh, and these two duking it out in the public sphere. We don't have that in Canada anywhere near what you find south of the border. Well, that was some great content. I can't wait to hear part two of that interview. Yeah, we we have plans to release that uh, next week. Um, I'm really excited because we go uh, even more in depth. And I think it's going to be another great episode. So stay tuned. If people want to connect with Joel, how can they do that? They can do that um, by going to joelteason.ca. So if you're wondering how to spell Teason, it'll actually be in the link here so we'll have we'll have some of those links available uh in the post so uh yeah it's joelteason.ca he's working on uh several really great projects one is called flourishing congregations and it's going to be a national uh conversation around churches that self-identify even as as flourishing so that we can talk about how do we define those things and and all kinds of great stuff so joel is always on the move always doing research and uh, I'm really excited that we, we have a, a two-parter to, to uh, share with you guys. Awesome. Well, stay tuned next week for the rest of that interview. And until then, thanks so much for tuning in and hanging out with us. It is the New Leaf Project. See you later. Thanks for listening to the New Leaf Podcast. You can find us on the web at newleafnetwork.ca or head on over to our Facebook page, New Leaf Network. 
We have events, workshops, and conversations happening all the time. We would love if you could join us as we share the stories of planters and stars all across Canada.